So are there any Star Wars fans in the house? Yeah, kind of, sort of. So, you know, Star Wars, Star Wars, like Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker, this epic story told by George Lucas. The first three movies, I guess it's really the last three. Those are the good ones. After that, it kind of goes downhill in my estimation. Some of you, maybe a few of you know, I grew up um, a huge Star Wars fan. I collected the action figures and I loved the movies. So after the movie The Return of the Jedi came out, I wanted so badly this particular action figure called Jabba the Hutt. All right, if you don't know, Jabba was this really big, uh, fat, kind of worm-like creature, like a big slug, kinda. And in my mind, if I could get that Jabba action figure, that would be my ticket to unrestrained happiness and joy. The problem was that my parents were very clear with me that they weren't going to buy Jabba the Hutt action figure, no matter how badly I wanted it. So I saved my allowance. I put some other toys that I already had on consignment at a local shop. And then when they sold, I took my $15 to Target and I bought Jabba the Hutt. Within minutes of opening the package, I realized that Jabba the Hutt, the action figure, was kind of lame. It was, it was, he was made of cheap plastic, and the paint job was not a very good one. He looked sort of silly, in fact, and it was nothing, nothing like I had imagined it would be. I realized in that moment I had projected way more hopes and dreams onto Jabba the Hutt than he could possibly fulfill. I'd gotten exactly what I wanted, and all I felt was disappointment, some sadness, a desire for something else. And I was out 15 bucks. Even if you have no idea who Jabba the Hutt is or what Star Wars is about, I'm guessing you can relate to this experience. You've had a moment in your life, maybe as a child or an adult or many moments, where you got that thing you wanted. You got the bike or the pet or a piece of jewelry or the acceptance letter to college or a trade school or you got a job or a house or a partner or a child or 2.3 children a family, the picket fence, something you really wanted, and then you found yourself stymied and stunned and saddened as you realized things weren't quite how they thought they might be. And I realize, as I lift up this question this morning, I'm coming at this question with a particular lens and a certain kind of race and class privilege, so I know this question can be nuanced and more complicated. One could ask this question, take this question, and turn it around and ask, what if you never get what you want? Because what you want is respect and basic human dignity and a fairness that seems elusive. And yet, even in cases of oppression and injustice, I believe there are still those moments where one gets what they want and finds it to be very different than they imagined. I'm reminded of the book Enrique's Journey, which I just recently read, which is the heartbreaking and incredibly moving story of this 17-year-old Enrique who leaves Honduras, who travels on the tops of trains through Central America and then Mexico to reconnect with his mother, who left 11 years ago, to reconnect with his mother, who now lives in North Carolina. When he finally reunites with her after this month-long journey, When he finally reconnects with her, which is exactly what he has wanted, he finds their new relationship and this new country he's in to be far more complicated and challenging than he'd imagined. 
He got what he wanted, but the question quickly becomes, now what? So despite racial and class barriers, this experience of, I got what I wanted, but, but now what? That seems to be part of the human experience. And the other side of this question, of course, is that sometimes you get what you really want, and it's fantastic, right? There's no apparent downside. Happiness settles into your soul, and all is bliss. That can happen for a little while. But the human condition, and certainly the teachings of poets and of religions and even of fairy tales, paint a very different picture. They suggest that we don't truly know what we want or that our wants have no end and that we're always asking, now what? A classic example of this is this Grimm's fairy tale that I'm sure some of you know about a fisherman, his wife, and a talking fish. You may know this story. The fisherman catches a talking flounder, like you do. Sometimes you're just fishing and you catch a talking flounder and the fish says to him, hey, throw me back into the water, like a talking fish does. And he does. And then when he gets home, his wife says to him, what the what? Like, that was a magical talking fish, man. You need to go back there and ask that fish for something because it'll grant a wish for us, I'll bet. Go back there. We live in a shack. Go back and ask that fish for a cottage. So he goes back and he asks for a cottage and poof, they get a cottage. And then he goes back and his wife is still not happy. And I told the first service, I'll tell you guys, the gender dynamics in this story, I'm not sure I care for them. <laughs> so we could pretend it's the husband who's not happy, or maybe it's a lesbian couple or a gay couple, but just, this, this, is, about the human, this is about human nature right here. All right? So the cottage isn't enough, so the fisherman goes back to this talking flounder and says, how about a big stone palace? And then that's not enough, so a request to become a king with lots of stone palaces, and then an emperor, and after an emperor to become the pope, and after that, finally, a request to become like God. And the flounder at that point says, hmm, not so much. <laughs> you can have your shack back. We get what we want. And then are surprised to realize it's not what we want at all or that we want something else. And so today, as we continue to dig into the theme of we've been waiting for you, we're exploring what it means to welcome, to be hospitable even, to the strange feelings that arise in us in the guest house that is our being when we've been waiting for something or for someone. And then it arrives and then all kinds of unexpected feelings and disappointments arrive with it. I remember talking to my spiritual director about this some time ago, about how easy it is to be enchanted by something, to be captive to the illusion of what we think something will be like, how easy it is to project expectations and hopes and dreams onto something, and then we get the very thing we've been desiring and the enchantment fades. The illusions melt away. We got what we wanted, and now we're not even sure we want it, or we want something else, or our $15 back. <laughs> this happens all the time, friends. You know it. This happens all the time in marriages, in relationships, with our material possessions even. There is this time of enchantment, and then the magic fades. This even happens in church, 
We find a spiritual home that seems just right. We take the pathway to membership class, which we're offering in October. <laughs> but then after a year or two or three, the enchantment fades. And we begin to see some of the warts on the faith or on the church community and what once had been so bright and shiny and perfect for us. I love this church. I love it. becomes a little less shiny, a little less bright, and we become disillusioned. My spiritual director reminded me that the real work, the holy work, if you will, is to see what's there, to see what's left after the initial enchantment fades or changes. Because what's there has something very important to teach us. Let me make this personal. Today, as we celebrate five years together, I confess that when I started this search process to find a church to serve and I saw this position, I did not expect to be your minister. Don't get me wrong. I wanted the position. I believed I had gifts to share with this community. I had been in large churches for eight years prior to that point and working in different positions, but I was young, and I'd never been a senior minister before. But I remember talking with Juliana, and in this search process, she's my wife, Juliana, she was looking ahead of me sometimes online at these search packets that churches were putting out there, and she said, Justin, look at this one from First Universalist. This is incredible. Look at this. And I was like, She's right. Like, I started to read through it, and I remember so clearly this sense of this is the church I hope to serve. This is where I hope to be. In this search packet, you described yourselves as healthy, as vibrant, as ripe for growth of all kinds. Church, your energy and vision enchanted me. In the search packet, there was a section called The Minister We Seek, which contained your longings, your hopes, your fantasies, perhaps. And here's some of that language. The minister we seek is a leader and a sage and a regular person rolled into one. <laughs> oh, it gets better, listen. <laughs> Authentic and empowered, perceptive and wise, warm and outgoing and deeply spiritual. We are looking for a minister who inspires us, who can breathe life into our vision and help us more fully develop our collective sense of purpose. The minister we seek must ride a unicycle. <laughs> that wasn't in there. <laughs> but if you saw our Facebook page this last week, you know I do ride a unicycle and I bring that unity, that oneness with me in my ministry, that sense of playfulness as well. You will know that by now. It goes on, the minister we seek is filled with energy and initiative, yet capable of executive decision-making and leading a staff and managing a budget of over $1 million per year. The section ended in this way. Is this too tall in order? We want our minister to have these traits, and we also understand that he or she will be human and thus have limitations and imperfections and failings. But know this, we are a great church and we are ready to strive to reach our potential in partnership with the senior minister who is striving to reach his or hers. Oh, church, I was enchanted with you. And you with me. And then we got what we wanted. And there was excitement and energy and dreams. 
and a little bit of worry because some of you thought I was too religious or too Christian, but mostly in those early months, we were still enchanted with one another, projecting all kinds of sweet things onto one another, all kinds of hopes and expectations and dreams and longings. It was a honeymoon of sorts, but the honeymoon ended as all honeymoons must and do. The worship service changed in the months that followed. Staff changed. Old habits and patterns began to change or didn't change. Kate Tucker retired. New staff came on board. New initiatives were launched. We worked for marriage equality. John Jensen retired. Our ministry team grew. We began to learn what it meant to be a church committed to racial justice. And somewhere along the way, it became clear that none of us, neither you all or I, could walk on water. It became clear that we were imperfect, fallible, and so very human. As a professor from seminary once told me, the first year of ministry, the minister can do no wrong. In the second year of ministry, the minister can do no right. (laughs) In the third year of ministry, the relationship begins. The timeline might be different than those three years, but you get the idea. And as the real relationship deepens, it's clear to me and to you that I am not John Cummins or Terry Sweetser or Susan Milner or Frank Rivas or Kate Tucker or any of the previous ministers of this church. I'm Justin with my own particular strengths and weaknesses and failings, and you're you, the Church of First Universalist. We have hopes and dreams and fears, and we bring our imperfect selves together in a beautiful kind of messiness as we practice giving and receiving and growing into love's people. As our relationship deepens, what is true is that I love this staff, and I love you all, the congregation of this church. That doesn't mean it's all easy. Our wants are constantly shifting, aren't they? And it will be interesting to see what happens this year as Reverend Jen Crow takes hold of the Faith in Action Ministries and Reverend Ruth takes hold of the work with our ninth graders in the Coming of Age program. It will be interesting, I say, because since I've been here, I have heard from many of you, hey, we would love a minister doing our Faith in Action work. We would love a minister working more with our youth. We're getting what we want. Now what? I'm sure it will be everything and nothing like we thought it would be. And that place of holy tension is a good place to grow a soul. The point is, when the illusions fade, when the enchantment melts away, then the real relationship with ourselves, with others, with God, with the strange guests in our guest house, those relationships can get more and more real, and we can build a life with what is, rather than a life built on a fantasy. Said another way, when we have the courage to acknowledge that we were enchanted and that the enchantment has faded, then the holy work, as Ginger said this morning, of seeing ourselves as real human beings, lacking in the ability to control our world and make it perfect, then that real work can begin. When we let go of illusions, then the real work of sharing our hopes and fears, of being seen and known and loved by others, that work can begin and can begin again and again. 
So friends, when the enchantment fades, when the illusions disappear, may we be hospitable with ourselves and with those around us. And let the church say, Amen.